everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined over the medium of Zoom by Terry Fakes. You know, I get a lot of questions about how we find the time to do this in the same room and always explain to people. It's kind of a trick in that we're usually on Zoom in different rooms. Usually we have our mics. It sounds like we're in the same room. Today, I think we both have our AirPods, so it sounds like we're on the phone with each other. Uh, but we've done about a million different variations of that, trying to make sure we always get the podcast done. Well, the using uh, video is way better than audio only. You know, everybody's probably familiar with those conference calls that are audio only, where everybody's interrupting each other. You get a little less of that with video, and it feels more like a discussion. So this has worked out quite well for us since you are currently about two and a half hours away. Well, and you know, we're celebrating the fifth anniversary of So We Speak this month. And I know we're doing some things online and on social media for that. But it just reminds me, we, of course, we used to be able to record our podcast in person. Most of the time we were living in Oklahoma City. But through the years, we've been in different places, Oklahoma City to Louisville and Kansas City, and now Carl Landing in Oklahoma City. So we've gone through some different things. But it, it's kind of amazing now how much we take for granted Zoom. Whereas pre-COVID, what we would right. do is we we used to just call each other on the phone with headphones and then have our mic on GarageBand. We both hit record at the same right. time. So you'd only get one side of the conversation and then we'd send the file and put it together. And anyway, and it makes it yeah. way easier now to do than it used to be. There's probably uh, an analysis to be done there as to the pandemic bringing new technologies to the fore that then become commonplace, but that's probably for another podcast. Yes, yes. Uh, but we are grateful for the miracle of Zoom. So on fr Fridays, we've done our Revelation series. That was a huge hit. We got so many great questions. We had some good conversations. Um, and so we wanted to continue engaging with some of these questions. And we jumped from the end of the Bible to the beginning of the Bible, going from your Wednesday night series to my Sunday sermon series. And just talking about questions that arise from these stories, there's so much to get through in these opening chapters of Genesis that no one sermon could capture many of the angles that you could have in, in preaching through these texts. What's been interesting to me as well is some of these stories have basically been relegated to vacation Bible school stories. You hear them when you're a kid, right. they're told in kid settings, and you never really move beyond kind of the, hey, here's a semi, I say mythical, not like people don't believe they're true, but you tell them like a myth or like a once upon a time in a land far, far away kind of story. And right. they have a moral lesson at the end. And that's pretty much it. And it's interesting to come back as an adult, both on the teaching side and as the listening side, and get beyond some of these simplistic ways of telling these stories. And you start to figure out there's a whole lot going on in these stories. And there's a whole lot that God is telling us in the open, opening chapters of Genesis that have very little to do with some of the moral lessons that we did take away, which are important. But going a few layers right. deeper, you see that there are some profound truths about humanity, about God, about redemption, about the way that we uh, interact with God and others. Yes, I think that uh, children's stories with a moral at the end, and I don't think that's a bad thing for children, but that's one way to approach these stories. You know, another way, Cole, that you are avoiding in this is we get co-opted in these stories, and we begin to 
to talk about these stories from a perspective that is basically apologetic. So for example, creation, well, were they six 24-hour days or was it a progressive creation? And in other words, we're responding to critiques to the text. But what you're doing, and you said it right up front, is you weren't going to answer some of those questions. But instead, what you're doing is, and this is important in my in my view, let's let the text speak for itself. What does God want to communicate to us in this story? And so, for example, you started with Adam and Eve, and you talked about the importance of the fig leaves. There's very little emphasis in the text given to the six days. The text completely blitzes by, uh, well, is there a gap theory here of creation? Is it a 15 million year creation? Is it 624? The text does not appear to care about that. The text cares a great deal about the sin of Adam and Eve and the covering. I mean, there's so much more text given to that, and you bring that out. And in fact, if our listeners haven't heard that, that sermon of yours on Adam and Eve is probably the best I've ever heard, partly because of the way you delivered it, but partly because you're trying to unearth what the text wants to say instead of having some meaning imposed on it. Then you went on this last week to Cain and Abel and continued the theme. So what would be just an overview of Cain and Abel's sermon that you gave this past weekend? Well, one of the things I wanted to highlight in the Cain and Abel story is it's often told as a story of jealousy between two brothers, uh, sibling rivalry. There are some really important uh, angles in the Cain and Abel story that explain the kind of strife you see between the two brothers. But again, if you look at where the text spends its time, and where the emphasis is in the text, Abel has no lines. He is barely mentioned. In fact, it passes so quickly through the murder of Abel. It's kind of shocking that something that catastrophic would happen and you get very little time spent in the text. Instead, you get a ton of time in the text and a lot of emphasis between the conversations that God has with Cain. And so one of the one of the rules of interpretation that you've just summarized, and I think really in preaching, this is very important since you're working on a fixed time schedule usually, is you want to let the main point of the text be the main point of the sermon. And mm-hmm. you can you can sometimes do things differently where you just say, hey, I, I know this is not, or by implication, you can say, I know this is not the main point of this passage, but I want to talk about this point of the passage. That's, that's fine to do, but right. as a general rule, when you're trying to understand the passage, especially broadly, you really want to grasp what is the main point of this text. And in the Cain and Abel story, one of the things that I was trying to make clear in this sermon is the relationship or the the way the relationship fails between Cain and Abel is actually downstream from what the main point of this text is, which is the sin that grows and gets out of control in Cain's life and the way that God deals with it with Cain. It's not to say that Cain and Abel isn't in important. It's, it is an important storyline and it is the culmination. But if you just get sibling rivalry out of the story, you miss a much deeper lesson in the opening chapters. And so for a lot of the sermon, uh, what I wanted to do was describe the process of Cain going from anger with misplaced worship uh, when he brings his offering and it's not accepted to a resentment of God, depression, his face is downcast, boils over into jealousy, jealousy boils over into murder, 
And then when God confronts him, even then he doesn't repent before God. His heart is completely hardened at that point. Uh, but you learn a lot by what God says to Cain and what he does. And of course, we can take a lot from looking at that in our own lives. So the the series itself is called Fig Leaves. And so each week we're looking at ways that we either hide or curate or manicure or put up a facade in front of other people to keep from being face-to-face with God, naked and unashamed. Whatever fig leaves we put in place, God removes and clothes us with his own uh, way of doing that. And so in the Cain story, you get a glimpse of what that will look like for somebody who does repent because God doesn't give Cain what he deserves. He has mercy on Cain. And in fact, he stays vengeance that he could have taken against Cain. And so we look at that and say, wow, if he will do that for an unrepentant Cain, what would he do for somebody who is repentant? And it's a great entry into talking about the forgiveness of God. So that's the basic shape of the sermon. And I think that's the basic Mm -hmm. shape of that story. Uh, But there's a million angles that you could take on this story. And so that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk a little bit more about it on the podcast. Well, one of the jumping off points for me was uh, in early in the story, you know, Abel brings the first and the best of his flock. Cain brings some of his produce. And that's the way you interpret that. And you explain that Abel was approved, not because God likes meat and better than he does vegetables, but because Abel gave him the first and the best, Cain gave some of. And uh, you're, you're in good company there because the Jewish rabbis largely throughout history have interpreted that story exactly that way. So honestly, you could take Abel out of that part of the story. Mm-hmm. Cain is not mad. You point this out. Cain is not angry because of Abel being approved. He's angry because of his offering not being approved. And you get the sense that Cain, with his face down, and that this text is very specific about his face fell, his face was down. You get the shame of the rejection of his offering. That really has nothing to do with Abel. But here's something that I wanted to explore with you a little bit, is with Adam and Eve, you see this idea of they covered up their shame by literally covering their nakedness. They were no longer comfortable being intimate with God, transparent with God. But very interesting thought that you point out is that Cain covers up his shame with anger. And I thought to myself when you said that, I went off on a tangent in my mind, and I thought, how often is that the covering of choice for us today, is when we fall short of what God expects of us, is we get angry. And you know, what are your thoughts about that? Because I thought that was really an interesting, quote, fig leaf that he chose. Mm-hmm. It's. It took me a while to figure out that that's what was going on in this story, because when we think of fig leaves, we think of something external. But part of the point of this story is anything or all of these narratives is anything that we utilize to prevent ourselves from having to be face to face with God is a fig leaf. So it's a coping mm-hmm. strategy. It's a defense mechanism. And yeah. so when it's when you see it in that light, it becomes really obvious that that's what's going on in this story is he uses his anger. Or, you know, he responds with anger as opposed to responding the way that he should have. So, for example, one of the commentators makes this point in an interesting way. David Atkinson, who's uh, 
written the, the Genesis commentary in the Bible Speaks today, he says, if Cain had been trusting God with that sort of faith, he's talking about basically when, when God comes to him, it's a teachable moment. And mm-hmm. the Lord does not accept his offering because it's not what the Lord requires. But faith would basically respond to that teachable moment. He says, if Cain had been trusting God with that sort of faith, he would have accepted that God's way was other than he had supposed. But such a faith is not there. Rather, he gets angry. Notice that he is not blamed for bringing his offering, nor is he even blamed for getting it wrong. Often we are cautious about taking risks in faith for fear that we will get it wrong. The truth is we will always, at least to some extent, get it wrong. But that is not the issue. If God only accepted us if we got it right, where would any of us be? So he right. offers a sacrifice. God does not accept it. But at that point, he's not being condemned. He's he's depressed. He's angry because his offering has not been accepted. But notice that God doesn't come to him with condemnation at that point. It's a teachable moment where he could have done something differently, but instead he gets angry. And so he makes a choice in that moment of, I'm either going to worship God's way or I'm going to worship my way. And when he realizes that his way and God's way are different, he doesn't repent and surrender his will to worship God's way. He gets angry and utilizes that to move himself away from the presence of God so that he doesn't have to do things God's way. And that is a very common response. When something doesn't go your way, when you feel like everything in your life is kind of falling apart and you pray one of those, are you even paying attention prayers? Mm-hmm. That's the seedbed of anger at God. And and you notice in this text, Cain is not angry at this point at his brother. He's right. more angry at God, presumably, than he is at Abel. You know, this came home to me because I could think just immediately of an example of this for marriage. And I'll just speak for myself. But there have been times, and this may be true in every marriage, but it certainly has been in in a 35-year marriage that I've been in. And that is my wife might say something to me, point something out, and it's embarrassing. Like, well, yeah, I did say that. I shouldn't have said that. Or, you know, it's it's uh, shame may be a little bit too strong a word for this example I'm using, but I'm at least embarrassed. Like, yeah, I, I know I shouldn't have done that. But you know, my first reaction used to be, isn't so much anymore, but my first reaction was to get angry, angry mm-hmm. at her for pointing it out. It would have been easy to say, you know what, you're right. I, I wish I hadn't done that. Thank you for pointing it out. And, and we could have gone on. But my first reaction was anger as a reaction to my embarrassment. And then you walk out of the room and you kick the dog. Now, I mm-hmm. don't kick our dog, but you get my point. And that's almost, I'm not trying to be facetious, but it's like pain is embarrassed, ashamed. And instead of saying, I'll bring another offering God, he gets angry at God because he's embarrassed and he walks out and takes it out on his brother. And I just thought to myself, how often does that play out in our mm-hmm. lives? And being aware of that, that that's not uh, just an interpersonal thing going on here. That's inside me that I'm choosing to use anger as a fig leaf to cover up my embarrassment or my shame. And I think that's a really unique way of looking at that. Well, the way, especially the way that those emotions or those phenomena are related to each other, it's, it's easier to be angry than it is to be vulnerable. And Hmm. Often when we have the choice of the two, we choose anger. And uh, when you're embarrassed, 
which is when you feel exposed or made fun of Mm -hmm. when you are feeling found out when you're feeling less than it's easy to cover that with something. And anger is always a great uh, option because anger is a referred kind of emotion. It's angry about something, you know, just angry abstractly. You're angry about something. Well, you're angry that somebody's confronted you or you're angry that you've been embarrassed or you're angry that you feel exposed or you're angry about injustice, whatever it is, it's in response to something else. And so what the story shows us is that's a live option. Almost anytime you feel disappointed uh, or you, you feel jolted by what God is or is not doing anger at God is a common reaction. Yeah. Well, as this story goes on, the next thing that happens is not murdering Abel. As you pointed out, the next thing that happens is God speaks to Cain. He doesn't just say, okay, it's not a good sacrifice. Uh, go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Cain reacts with anger and his his face is downcast. God comes to him. And I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, Cole, but you know what that made me think of? Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? And so son comes home, dad throws the party. Everybody's in the party except the older brother. Older brother is not coming in. He's going to stay outside. And the dad comes out to reach out to the older brother. And you, mm-hmm. you made this point about Cain is you said that when Cain's life was out of control or when Cain is struggling with his shame or his embarrassment, he's in the midst of his anger, that God is not absent. He actually comes to Cain and he doesn't come with condemnation. As you just said, he comes and he says, Cain, you know, why are you downcast? This can be undone. If you do well, meaning if just bring it, bring the right sacrifice, you will be approved. But sin is crouching at your door, and you're going to have to decide which way you're going to go. Will you give in to the anger, or will you repent? Will you turn and come back? Because I'm here. And I just think that idea of God reaching out to Cain in the midst of his low point is a very compassionate image of God. It's not like you failed, so you're out. God continued to pursue him. And I see that all through the New Testament as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we have the tendency to think that however we feel about God or however we react to God, that must be the way that he feels about us or reacts to us. So if you've done something wrong, you're feeling distant from God. A lot of times we just copy and paste that onto God. Well, he must be distant from us in that moment. That's often not the case. In fact, what we see in this story is right at the crisis moment, God actually draws near and gives Cain a chance to repent surrender, draw near to God. And I think that happens a lot. Now, it's up to you whether you ignore that or you suppress it or you stop listening. That's a major temptation in those situations. But but it's interesting here that God does not react the way that Cain reacted. He doesn't react the way Adam and Eve reacted. If you think about Adam and Eve go and right. hide because they're ashamed of their sin, God already knows about their sin in that moment. So if if we're thinking the way that Adam and Eve are thinking, God just never would have come back, never would have brought it up. That just would, the relationship would just draw up pretty close. He comes to find them. Yeah. Exactly. He wants to restore this relationship. Yeah. And this is going to happen again. We're going to see this happen again in the Abraham story. Uh, when Abraham decides to take things into his own hand, because God is not answering the promise that he's given, 
God comes to him and says, hey, I am going to fulfill my promise. Right. And not the way that you've figured out how to fulfill my promise. I'm going to fulfill it the way I said to. So we've got to be careful not to just put a mirror image of our feelings and our reactions onto God because he doesn't work that way. And so here he comes to Cain in the midst of the most, the right, right before the most terrible part of the story and right after God comes to Cain in both situations. Yeah. You know, I think that's really an astute observation. This is worth, worth meditating on the idea that because I'm angry at God or I'm ashamed of myself, that I shouldn't project that because God's not angry at Cain at that point, And God's not ashamed of Cain. And you see that in the New Testament, that the stories that literally just piled into my head when I'm thinking about that is Jesus and the woman caught in adultery in John chapter eight. She's humiliated, of course, and she's uh, she's wrong, obviously. She's been caught in sin, but she's been unjustly caught in sin. So she's probably ashamed. She's angry. She's confused. She's hurt. And look at just how Jesus approaches her. He doesn't approach her with anger. He does say, don't sin anymore. But he also comes to her without a judgmental, angry attitude. I think of uh, Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. There's a built-in hostility towards Samaritans. And he tells her, you guys are not worshiping correctly. But he doesn't come with anger. Zacchaeus, that's the third one that jumped in my head. Here's somebody that is universally hated, and mm-hmm. rightly so. He has profited on the backs of his own countrymen. And Jesus comes to him and also tells him, you are not living right. This is not right. But he comes without anger. And that was a great lesson to me is I can come with the truth, but I need to leave the anger behind because anger in that moment does not do any good. And that's not the example God's given us. Even Cain, you know, who's in the depths of his anger at God, God comes to him without a corresponding anger of his own. That's just a powerful picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love the way you put those stories in parallel because the character of God is the same all the way through. So it shouldn't be surprising, right. although it is sometimes, that Jesus reacts in the same way that we would expect God to react and mm-hmm. vice versa. Um, God reacts in Genesis the way we'd expect Jesus to react uh, because their character is the same. Um, I was going to ask you this, actually, because you've read into this further than I have. Of course, you can't get to you, you can't get into a lot of the research in the sermon, but it, it's interesting what ends up happening to Cain in the following literature. And I just briefly mentioned this in the yeah. sermon that he he becomes kind of a whipping boy. It's Cain and Esau really are the two where it's like, okay, we need an evil person. Well, right. Cain will do, you know, and and of course his legend grows and grows and grows and grows in the Jewish writings. But I wondered if you'd come across any of that in the research that you've done. If you find some really startling and funny things about Cain uh, in the Jewish writings, because he does become this paragon of resisting God, rebelling, you know, being right. angry at God, and it leads to his own destruction. Yeah, a little bit. You, you really gave one of the funny things about the horn, the sign, the mark that God puts on Cain is, you know, a horn that comes out of his forehead. And so you get you get the idea of the legends and myths that grew up around him. But you do also see later the vilification by the Jews of the Gentiles, the nations, and the elevation of themselves. You actually see this a little more in the Noah story, but you mm-hmm. also see it here. You know, the descendants of Seth, you know, out of Adam, which are the good people, and the de- descendants of Cain, 
you know, which are the evil, and you can guess which ones the Jews pictured it as. But you're right. Cain becomes a, a symbol of sin. And I don't know, though, Cole, if I read that story that way. I've always thought that is so poignant to me, the image of Cain being cast out into the land of wandering, you know, the land of Nod. And I can't help read into that, that sin takes you into the wasteland of life to wander. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, where my mind goes, and I know you are familiar with this too, is he goes out into the east to wander. And I think it's really interesting that the wise men are going to come to Jesus from the east. And it's almost like a full circle that the sin has taken humanity into the the land of wandering, and Jesus calls them back home. That's probably more what I, I see in that. But you're right. The intertestamental literature has a lot of bizarre myths about Cain. And I will say, too, just from an apologetics angle, Sometimes you hear people say that the New Testament hardly ever refers back to these quote unquote primeval stories mm-hmm. in Genesis 1 through 11. And I was doing a cross reference search last week on the Cain and Abel story in the New Testament, in addition to the intertestamental literature. And uh, there are at least seven places in the New Testament where this story is mentioned. They all are basically mentioning that Cain was evil and Abel was good, one of the two or both. Hebrews mentions it twice. Jesus uh, mentions it. John mentions it. Jude mentions it. Paul mentions it. I mean, this story, and Adam and Eve for that matter, they're not mentioned as Mm -hmm. much by name, but uh, these stories are mentioned a lot more than you think. They're paradigmatic for the way that these New Testament authors are explaining things about the world to us. And so you actually see that predating the New Testament authors by seeing it in all of this intertestamental literature, stuff that's not in the Bible. It was very uh, well lodged in the consciousness, the religious consciousness of the Jews as they were writing. It was their story that they would use to explain things, a lot of these early stories. Um, and But you see that from the New Testament authors as well. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because some scholars, particularly liberal scholars, want to see the early Christians and the writers of the New Testament as reinterpreting the Old Testament to suit their ends. However, I think the the data itself would show that the Jews had already drawn the lessons from these stories that the New Testament authors are using. So Mm -hmm. I I really think that history rebuts that more liberal understanding of it. I don't think the New Testament authors reinterpreted the Old Testament. I think they, the Jews got the point about Cain and Abel. They just then took it forward and said, look what God has done. It's come full circle with Jesus, which really leads me to the way you close this sermon. Uh, And I really like that the sermon itself was powerful ideologically to me. I mean, just as somebody who listens and you think, wow, look what God is doing here. Look what this really means. And, you know, it it already applied to my life, the idea of covering your embarrassment or shame with anger, anger at God, anger at others. But at the end, you turned this and you talked about that Abel's blood is a type, if you will, or forecast of Jesus' blood, the innocent that is slain. And you you said this, it said, you used to be a Cain, 
but God now sees you as able because mm. of the blood of Christ. And I thought that was really interesting, bringing that story, uh, which I would argue is where the story wants to go. It wants to presage Christ. But I love that phrase, you used to be Cain, and now God sees you as able. Mm. Yeah, the, the types in the Bible cause us to have to link the whole story together. So we can't just read Cain and Abel and stop there. We have to think about what, how does this connect to the bigger picture and the sacrifice of Christ and the death of Abel is something that the author of Hebrews brings together. So it's not even something that right. we just have to dream up out of nowhere. The blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks vengeance justice needs to be satisfied. The blood of Christ speaks forgiveness. The blood, the justice has been satisfied. And the connections between Cain and Abel are interesting, especially when you think about the death of Christ. Cain rejected, angry at God, angry at his brother, kills his innocent brother. Very similar to what we see happen in the New Testament gospel accounts. Those who right. were supposed to be worshipers alongside their brothers the Pharisees primarily get so angry because of their evil deeds that they end up putting Christ to death. And so he is kind of an able figure. And we, by implication of our sin, our sin is the thing that held Jesus on the cross and the thing that uh, he needed to die for. So by implication, we are the ones who are like Cain in that story, but because of the exchange that's made, now we are like the innocent uh, children of God. And so it's just a great, way to return to the whole storyline of the Bible to say, this story teaches us something even way in the future about the gospel and forgiveness. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.